Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. All right, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Today I'm here with Paul Levy, who has such a fascinating story and different insights that are uh, both uh, current and ancient. Uh, and at the same time, he would probably go as far as to say that uh, history can be viewed as the remembrance of a dream continuum happening in the moment. Uh, we'll get into more of what that means. Uh, also, uh, founder of Awaken in the Dream, uh, and there's a lot of synchronicity behind that. And the reason that I'm interviewing Paul and that I've requested to interview him is that I uh, began recently reading a book called Dispelling Watiko, uh, and we're going to be talking about the spirit of Watiko. Also, I was first uh, told about this spirit from the book Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, when she talks about the Wendigo spirit, which is the same spirit with a different name from a different tribe. And these spirits, as we'll begin to learn, are wreaking a lot of havoc on the world and have a lot of our systems have been built with and through and to serve the spirit. With all that said, welcome, Paul. Hi. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Really, thank you so much. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get to working with Watiko Spirit? Um, uh, I see that this probably wasn't your traditional cultural upbringing. And then I see that in the background you have uh, what looks like, I believe, Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's one of your spiritual practices. So uh, yeah, yeah. how did you end up here? Because something happened to you at a specific time that I yeah. think a lot of my listeners could relate to. Sure. Well, to create context for how I found my work, I um, was in my early 20s, had just graduated college, and I'm an only child. And without going into the story, it wound up that my father was a really, really bad guy, really sick um, person, but it, it wasn't diagnosed. And, um, you know, and like anyone, when you have um, unhealed abuse, you acted out on your partner or your, your kids or the dog or whatever. And... Um, being the only child and being very sensitive at a certain point, and particularly when I began to individuate when I was in college, um, I became the recipient of my father acting out his emotional abuse. And without going into the story, it created enormous suffering for me. And um, it, was, it was such profound suffering that I went from a highly accomplished person. You know, I was very good at school and had a lot of friends and was very happy and healthy. Um, to all of a sudden not being able to live my life when the trauma really, really sort of came out. Um, and so all of a sudden, here I am in my early 20s, and I knew I had a big problem. And how I dealt with it, or the only way I found to deal with it that was of any help, was to go inwards and just to assume the position of being the witness to my experience. So I began to watch my own mind. And slowly, slowly, that was giving me some sort of, you know, it was, it was alleviating my suffering to a small degree. And then after doing that for hours and hours a day, um, you know, with a teacher and studying and stuff like this, I, um, I got hit by a bolt of lightning, but not from the sky, just it ignited inside of my brain, just for a nanosecond. 
And as I was sitting in meditation, and I went into an extreme state, to an unbelievably expansive state, in which I began to, to recognize, I was in the beginning stages of having the recognition that this, this life, is, is a dream, is a collective dream that we're all dreaming up into materialization each moment. Um, but from my friend's point of view, I was in, in the Bay Area at this point, it was like I had had this radical personality change because I was acting so incredibly happy and enthusiastic and, you know, and interesting just etymologically, you know, um, and theos, the root of enthusiasm means to be filled with spirit. And um, so it really freaked people out. And within 24 hours, I got hospitalized. And um, Against and your was, will? Well, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, what's against, that? Hospitalized against your will? Well, at that point, I wouldn't even say it was against my will because I had so let go. There was something so profoundly coming through me that I was just following the dream. And I yeah, was like, I wonder where this goes. What, yeah, what yeah, happens yeah. next? I was you just know? totally following how things were unfolding. And um, so that was the first hospitalization. That was in 1981 in, in the spring. Where'd you go? Did, were you at Herrick um, Hospital in Berkeley? No, but I was in Herrick Hospital a few months later. But oh, I was, cool. Me in, too. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I, that, um, what was it called? Um, We've just killed all of our credibility uh, for like, right, like 50% right. of the potential listeners, right? <laughs> um, Highland, Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. I got brought by ambulance. That was the first one, but Herrick was later. So during that next two years, probably three, four or five other times, I, I kind of lost count. I was hospitalized because I was a free agent. I was out in the world and I was having this full-blown spiritual awakening and I was meeting my teachers. And particularly when I was in their field, these great enlightened teachers from Southeast Asia and from Tibet, um, particularly when I was in their field, it was as if the space-time continuum would warp and stuff that would happen that weren't just synchronicities, but were these miracle-like experiences that could only happen in a dream. And they particularly began happening when I was around my teachers. And, you know, I, I see now, oh, yeah, that I, something was being shown to me. And, you know, I've spent the rest of my life, I'm now in my 60s, you know, integrating what, what was being shown to me. And I'm still in the process of, of assimilating it. Um, but to make a long story short, um, it was that next couple of years was here I was having a full-blown awakening, had this proclivity to get myself hospitalized which itself was unbelievably traumatic. That almost killed me. It, that almost drove me crazy. And it destroyed my family. My parents both died at a certain point a number of years later. They had bought into the psychiatric point of view that their only child, me, was, you know, was mentally ill, was, was manic depressive. And I knew I wasn't. It was so obvious to me. It couldn't have been made more obvious that I was having a spiritual awakening. And that's what saved me. The fact that I knew that because I, every single person in my universe, all the doctors, my parents, my friends, everybody was reflecting back that I had this mental illness and I'm in denial of my illness. And I just knew they, they were crazy. Not that they were crazy. I, I was diagnosing them as having, as being, you know, just having ignorance, not knowing what was happening. And it was, it just couldn't have been more obvious to me from my own inner subjective experience, what was happening. But I was fortunate in that I was able to extricate myself, you know, from the psychiatric community. But it took a few years. And, you know, they had me on drugs. And it was, it was a nightmare. So then I had the trauma from my father and then the trauma from the psychiatric thing. 
And then it took me about a do, like 12, 12, maybe 10 years, 12 years, I think more like 12 years of going to therapy and connecting with my dreams and studying young and meeting my Tibetan Buddhist teachers and making art and, and just, you know, anything and everything I could do to try to understand what was happening, um, you know, inside of my mind. And, um, and then after, you know, that time, that's when I realized, well, I'm still a work in progress, but I have something to offer based on the initiatory experience that I've just gone through this ordeal. I've, I've actually understood something. And so in 93 or 94, I think, is when I opened up my private practice. At that point, I was on the West Coast in Portland. And I haven't had to do anything else since. That's, um, that's what I've been doing for 25 years. Yeah, so that's, that's the short form. I could go into any aspect of that if you have questions or anything. Yeah, a lot of uh, people that are in our, in our local community here have been diagnosed bipolar, myself included. Um, bipolar, uh, you know, manic depressive, depressed, anxiety disorder. And, mm-hmm, then, mm-hmm. and then later, I, that later it was diagnosed PTSD and then finally complex trauma. And, right. uh, you know, there's just this, this sea of labels. And uh, for a time, I got to the point where, like, I, I kind of went in the opposite direction. I didn't feel a bunch of joy and peace and love. I felt like everything was meaningless. The whole world, I was, ni- I was stuck in a state of nihilism. Nothing mattered. Like, even right. if I'm successful, it doesn't matter. And, you know, and, uh, and I ended up getting on bipolar medication. This is many, many years ago. And, right. uh, of course, when I got on, I didn't realize that, uh, it's virtually impossible to stop taking it because just the stopping of it could cause seizures, and right. uh, and I had no idea what the hell shamanic you know shamanic experiences or shamanic initiation would be, or or that maybe that's what was wanting to happen, or why I had panic attacks that hospitalized me multiple times where I would think I was dying, be fully convinced like I couldn't breathe, going in and out of consciousness. And, uh, you know, I just thought I was quote unquote broken. I lacked a mentor. I, I lacked an initiation and I think I was seeking that. And I think a lot of people that come into our community and probably people that are listening to this podcast would probably be along those lines, maybe diagnosed or have the feeling that maybe that they're supposed to feel like a Stepford wife or the male version of that, just walking around in a world that is, you know, possessed by what we'll start to get into, Watiko, uh, yeah, yeah. uh, Watiko consciousness or Watiko spirit, and walk around being totally happy when they're not, and not able to mm. grieve, and not even knowing that grief is an option. And yeah, uh, yeah. Th- this all comes from me, my family, you know, sh- shamanism, sh- shaman comes from the word shamanka, which is the female term in Russian. And my family's from Siberia, both my mother, sorry, both right. my grandfather and my grandmother were born in Siberia, Chalabins and Kemerovo. So, uh, and I had no idea that what a shaman was. I'd never even heard of that term. Um, you know, right. if I could say something, because I didn't either, I mean, you know, I was in my early twenties and, and then, but pretty quick on, I had realized, oh my God, I've gotten drafted into a shamanic initiation. And, um, you know, and when people call me a shaman now, I mean, that there's no way I think of myself as a shaman or identify myself, but I do say to them, I go, the shamanic archetype has been activated in me for a number of years. And yet in my, in my, in my dreams, in my wildest dreams, I'm a shaman, but not at all do I identify myself in that way. But the point is we're all shamans in training. I mean, think about little kids in a family. They're like little shamans. They just will take into themselves and act out the unprocessed unconscious in the parents. That's very shamanic, you know? And so I've written extensively about how we're all shamans 
And actually, that's one of that's like one of the major archetypes that's activated in the collective unconscious. And it's the it's the archetype that so many of us are being called to step into and to fully embody. And it's the archetype that's actually going to really help to heal the world. How is that different from the warrior, magician, lover, uh, king archetypes that are yeah. in Robert Moore's well, work, for example? They're all, I would, I would think of it like a jewel and they're all different facets. They're interrelated facets of a jewel, you know? Now, the thing about a shaman, which is really interesting, it, you know, it's not something, I mean, you'd have to be completely out of your mind to voluntarily choose to be a shaman. I mean, that's just like the craziest thing I've ever heard because you can't imagine the level of suffering that you have to go through. It's something that you get called by the spirits, right? So you have a deeper calling. And, but the point is, is that, you know, it always involves a descent into the darkness of the unconscious and, in you know, the place of, of evil and death and insanity and all that, you know, stuff. Uh, but the point is, is that if you don't assent to it, if you're actually getting called by a, you know, some sort of higher energy, that's when the would-be shaman can really fall sick and get really crazy and die. But as soon as you assent and cooperate with the calling, then all of a sudden you get sponsored, you get supported in that calling. And the image is to not get stuck in that underworld, but when the shaman comes back up to the world, they have gifts that they've, that they've been given as a result of that process, and it's gifts for the community, you know? And um, yeah, so, and it helps so much. Like the shaman is related to the wounded healer, the archetype of the wounded healer. And like when I heard you say, yeah, you feel, you felt you, you were, you know, in this broken state. Same here. I got totally broken by my father and by psychiatry. And, and I'm still, I still feel that, that core wounding. But whereas at first I couldn't even imagine, you know, being able to go through my life with that woundedness my whole story has changed now. And now that I kind of, I carry it in a different way such that that brokenness or that, that wound becomes an open portal through which my shamanic gifts pour through. So it's the, a God, the gods live in the wounds or God lives yeah, yeah, in yeah. the yeah. wounds. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. You know, and then one other thing about the shaman that's really interesting, I have a, uh, a really interesting way of describing it because I have a whole community of people in Portland who are, you know, having the recognition that we're dreaming and, there's a way of hanging out where we can actually like help each other to deepen our awakening. So it's, it's a real alchemical vessel. And, um, and what happens, people come in and what a perfect place to act out their unconscious, to like you know, embody it and play it out. It would be problematic if they stayed stuck in that state, but you act it out and then you pop out of that state and you contemplate with the other people or by yourself what you acted out as a way of getting, wow, that was an unconscious part of me. Now I see it. I've objectified it. I've experienced it from both the inside subjectively and from the outside objectively. So you actually, that's the way you integrate it. And as soon as you then integrate what you acted out, you jump back in and do the next iteration of the unconscious. And that, I want to say, is a beautiful expression of the shamanic, you know, shamans go on a journey. That's a form of the shamanic journey where you like act out your unconscious and then, but you don't stay stuck and then you contemplate it so as to integrate it and then you do it again. And we're all in essence doing that. But the idea of actually doing it consciously, I think makes all the difference. And this is done in some way that I imagine is like safe and consenting, right? Well, uh, right. The idea of a container. So I have all these groups all throughout the week 
Um, you know, and it's the same people in the groups, you know, for, for a number of years. Some groups, the average tenure is over 10 years each person. Some people in it, in the groups for over 20 years. Yeah, so it's totally, you know, by consent and, and that's the intention. The intention is, you know, and think about it, if somebody is acting out their unconscious, well, they're a dream character in all of our dream, in our collective dream. But they're not like attacking. There's not like five people attacking one person and then that oh, person. Oh, no, 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 no. It's nothing like that. There has to be boundary that it can't be overly abusive and all that. Absolutely. You know, but the point is we're always acting out. We're always like projecting onto the waking ink plot anyway. So it's a way of actually encouraging that projection, which we're always doing. I mean, that's what a dream is. It's a projection. So we're always, that's what I mean when I say this is dreamlike. We're always projecting onto the waking ink plot, you know, and, but almost all of us are doing it unconsciously where we're just reinforcing our unconscious. What I'm saying, there's a way of hanging out. And that's what my, what these groups that I lead, I've been doing this for like 25 years, you know, so it's not just a theory. It's, it's what these groups that I lead, it's, it's an alchemical container for people to really access and integrate their deeply unconscious stuff that if you don't become conscious of it, you then, you know, it becomes, you know, sort of self or other destructive. Can you give an example of something that might happen in one of these alchemical containers or alchemical vessels that you've been holding? Like, what is something of yeah, an yeah. example of something that's been able to come out in from the unconscious into the conscious and then be able to be integrated and healed so it, it stops getting projected outward? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. Like, I'm more more likely to be the recipient of, like, if people have, you know, authority, unhealed authority issues, and who doesn't, you know, being in the negative patriarchal culture that we live in. And so I'm more likely to be the recipient of that projection because of my role as facilitator. And, you know, it's in my house, I get paid for it. And in a certain way, I, I have, you know, a certain um, power in the group. Um, so then, so say if somebody has unhealed authority stuff, they're going to, um, you know, say they'll project it out on me and they'll be experiencing me as being the negative authority figure. Maybe they're their abusive father or whatever. And, and I might even get hooked and play that out with them, which convinces them of that I really am that character, which, which makes it really, you know, in this real way, now they have all the evidence to confirm their projection. But if I stay stuck in that projection, then what good is that? Then I'm just reiterating their abuse. I'm recreating their trauma with them, you know, over and over. But the point is, and keep in mind that, you know, it's not just me and them, it's like 10 or 12 other people and everybody's getting triggered in their own way because of their own wounding. And so then we actually go into that process and say if at a certain point I step out of the role of being the abuser that they're like projecting on me and they're able to like have the, the recognition, oh wow, it's just Paul, my friend who I love. Wow, that was all a projection that I was projecting on Paul and he was like playing it out help me to see it and now he's like stepped out of the character of being the abuser that can help them to see oh my god that whole image of the uh, of the abuser the origin of that was their own psyche because it's so convincing that it was out there and someone else which just confirms you know the that the abuse is real so that might be just one one example if you get what i mean yeah that makes sense Cool. I wanted to really just touch on that because I know I'm recording this in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I spend half my time. Uh, and I know a lot of people, there's been a lot of cults in this state. 
Right. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are terrified about types of groups that would say that they're going to act out the unconscious. It generally means might is right. And some, you know, somebody right. in there is in charge and doing some crazy stuff and everybody else is having to follow along. And then that's where the origins of trauma tend to end up is somebody's too weak to really do anything and they don't really know what to do with it. As far as I could tell, and right. creates all of these, creates all of these wounds that we're working through. And sometimes yeah, the yeah. cure, sometimes the cure looks a lot like the poison. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is, if I can just say, one of the things that makes my groups really different, now, the thing to keep in mind is that we all become, or, you know, not everybody, but a, a lot of people, we just become really close and really good friends. And I, as much as, or probably more than anybody in the group, I'll get reflection. I will, I'll share my struggles. I'll get triggered and act out my unconscious wounding. And then I'll get a ton of reflection from people. So at that point, when I'm acting out my unconscious and I'm triggered, I can't facilitate because I'm like, you know, taking over, I phone into my unconscious. So then other people pick up the role of facilitator and, um, and they'll help to like, you know, to, to show me something. And I think that's the very process that really is the safeguard against like the, the, the sort of the insidious, you know, um, the cult-like behavior that can become really negative and, where people abuse power because I'm, you know, I'm not interested in having power over anyone. I want to heal. And so people so appreciate that it becomes a real circle where we all pick up all the roles. I'm not just the one having a monopoly on the role of, oh, I'm the teacher and the healer and anything like that, because that's bullshit, you know? And so, yeah, so that I think really creates an equality among people. So is magic real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, you know. I saw Dean Radin review your more recent book, and yeah, I read yeah, yeah. his book, Magic is Real. And, yeah, his uh, book came out one month before my book, and I read his book, and you know, he's amazing. And, you know, I, I'm absolutely convinced magic is real because it happens in these groups night after night after night, and just in my life. And even quantum physics, which I just recently wrote a book about, it's talking about that this is this magical universe that. You know, and so it very much is like we're under a spell. I mean, I talk about that in my work a lot, that we've hypnotized ourselves and we've become enchanted by the creative genius of our own mind to call forth reality in such a way that's killing us. But what I'm trying to illumine is, wait a second, we're, we have this genius power, this unbelievably invisible creative power inside of us that to the extent we're unconscious of it, it boomerangs against us and is killing us. What if we become conscious of that? That's where we can really heal each other and, and begin to heal the world. One of the most powerful things I've received from your book, which we haven't, surprisingly, we've gotten this far 22 minutes in before really speaking about it yet, and maybe mm -hmm. now isn't even the time yet, is that the idea that there is uh, a more encompassing reality of the archety archetypical realm that mm -hmm. is essentially able to, in certain cases, hijack the human being. And this, mm -hmm. is, this mm -hmm. is deeply embedded in Jung's work. When I first discovered that there yeah, was yeah. a psychiatrist that was talking about this and that there's tons of studies of people speaking languages that they didn't even know and doing things mm -hmm. that were physically impossible to do from our current model of science and medicine, I mean, it absolutely floored me. I wondered if you could speak mm -hmm. about how uh, this embodied existence that we're in right now with our current consciousness and unconscious acting out. And if you could speak to 
the archetypes that yeah, are essentially sure, sure, totally. No, that's something. I mean, I'm I'm very fluent in that. And that um, you know, um one way to think about it is to introduce the term um the daimonic. The daimonic is a term that really connotes um the the inner voice or the guiding spirit. Okay, that's the that's the meaning when you have like like um daimon that's the guiding spirit and it's when you try to send an email and it gets kicked back at you it's a mailer daimon right? right well that's interesting right that's a little bit different but um <laughs> but the thing just etymologically it has to do with one's vocation hearing a voice one's calling and one's genius all of those words are related to the daimon now the daimon is an archetypal energy in that it can take over a person or it can take over a community of people, right? It can take over the ego. And um, now if we're not in, in relationship to the daimon consciously, it constellates negatively and becomes a demon. And then, yeah, then it says right then it here in etymology, Greek daimon, lesser God, guiding spirit, tutelary deity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. It's the one's angel or whatever. And encoded in the daimon, is the creative spirit, okay? So the point is, is that if you don't consciously connect with the daimon, which is an archetypal energy that can take over an ego, it, it constellates negatively. And the, you know, the greatest poison in the human psyche is unexpressed creativity. Now, the, the point is, is that if we're, so say you know, we're all these whole beings, ultimately, but we, we experience trauma. What happens in trauma? We disassociate, it's overwhelming, it can't be integrated in the normal way, so we split which has a double meaning of both to, to leave and to dissociate. So then we dissociate and that part of our wholeness that's not connected to the psyche now that's disassociated, it can develop an autonomy and a seeming life and will, an independent life of its own. That psychologically is called an autonomous complex. The ancients call that a demon, okay? Now that autonomous complex can actually take over the ego and then the person becomes the vehicle for that demon, for that you know, autonomous complex, which is archetypal. It's not just personal, it's transpersonal. A person can, can literally be the outpost and can literally become possessed by it and act that out. And that, that's, I mean, how I learned that, I had to come to terms with that because that's what my father played out. He was literally possessed, you know, because he wasn't dealing with his own darkness, he unwittingly was taken over by it and possessed by it and acted it out. And it almost killed me. And, and I probably felt a ton of shame for it and then didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to look at it. And then it just perpetuates that. Yeah, same exactly. It, works its it, way perpetuates. Right back it becomes, in. it becomes unless the person is willing to reflect upon what happened, then exactly right. It becomes a self reinforcing feedback loop. And, and then the energy is like um, this impenetrable bubble that resists reflection at all costs. And, and that's where the autonomous complex, the demon becomes more like of, of this permanent sort of inhabitant in the person's psyche. Because it's not integrated and, and taken and like, it's almost like isolated in the underworld coming up into the human being as this yeah, separate yeah. being and animating the body. You all of a sudden yeah, you have exactly, a five-year-old, exactly. yeah. a five-year-old that's super rageful animating a 47-year-old body beating the hell out of somebody. Or Right, right. Who yeah. might have a gun, who might have a gun or something like that. No, absolutely. And, and they typically have no idea consciously 
that they're very self-righteous of their point of view because they're then projecting out their very state of being taken over by darkness invariably because they're split from that they'll project out that shadow and the person who they're projecting it onto they'll typically want to kill that person which is a reflection of how they're killing their own darkness and it, it's just you know that's watiko what you just described that's the psychological description of of the watiko virus and um you know, and I, I, had to, I, I had to learn that for my own survival because it came into my field through my father, you know? Yeah, I had a, I grew up with a lot of abuse as a child. And uh, I remember that uh, I was, I, I didn't know the words then. So I'll just say what I felt before. Uh, I look at it as a blessing now. And the wound has, I'm beginning, as you use the words, to carry the wound differently as yeah, yeah. more of a gift and a blessing. Although right. those wounds have been blessed, which they hadn't been before, by more and more people. But uh, I remember being considered, I'd even been called the Antichrist and right. kind of uh, got treated as though I was kind of an abomination or a mistake of God, you know, right. and uh, and I remember hearing that you know, all children, if they don't obey their parents, should be taken out to the village and stoned directly from the Bible. Uh, right. And uh, needless to say, that really fucks one up in their mind because if you're despicable in the in the mind or the mind of God, there's nowhere for you to go for refuge and solace. Right. So, no, like probably. your very existence, I hear of Nine Inch Nails song come in my mind. Uh, you know, my whole existence is flawed, you know, and I, I really felt that. And uh, I think I really had this craving to live up to that terrible label of the Antichrist. Right. And I remember right. when there was a one really intense situation that I won't go into details with where I was being called the Antichrist and another person was getting called the disciple of God. Uh, I I wanted, I I just remember thinking, how is the Antichrist and the devil so weak that it can't help me? You know, because here I am, and right. like if I am this evil being, uh, how do I get out of this? You know, my first uh, ever Facebook review on Zeitgeist was Zeitgeist, uh, was actually someone that said, uh, I am leading the children away from God. Shame on me. That was my first ever review on Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist. It was just that right in that wound right. of like, am I really, am I right. doing that? Well, can you I know? just, can I, can I speak to, because yeah, like in, please. In, you know, in, with, with my family. So here my father was, you know, I mean, to say he was a psychopath, I mean, I created a term for him, you know, that's the, what, not that I created Watiko, but that was the term I used. He was just, like I said, a really bad guy. And because he was so smart and charismatic and he projected out his shadow, I picked up the role of the identified patient. And the identified patient is typically the one who carries the image of being the bad one or the sick one or the crazy one or the problem. And then as soon as psychiatry came on and then they labeled me, then my father had all the, you know, he had the confirmation that I really was that way. And then what you're describing in yourself of being the image of the Antichrist that's that on steroids, you know, because then you're carrying that dark, you know, image that's being projected, particularly as a kid, that can really, you know, imprint on you. And then, you know, you, to the extent that you're not integrated that and dispelling that, you're going to unconsciously, you know, 
act that out in whatever way as sort of confirmation of your badness, you know? Because what happens is we, if we're not whole, we tend to split the opposites. We tend to, instead of, oh, I'm light and dark, no, I'm just all light and the yeah. darkness is out there. And totally. then, you know, that's the, that's the shadow projection. That's the scapegoating. And so here my father was really this bad guy and I carried the projection of being the scapegoat. And so many family systems, that's what happens. And it, it, anyways, yeah, so I'm so familiar with what you're describing and I'm just sorry that you had to go through that. I just hope that uh, this, the fact that I've went through that can help with that situation. The challenge is, is in my family, right. uh, there's entirely different stories that are woven that go alongside my experiences. Like, I mean, like right. I, I ended totally. up being taken away by child protective services when I was 13. And then there's a whole story of like how I caused that. And then my grandmother, when I was 13, blacked right. out and passed out. And I caused so much stress because I wanted to go fishing or whatever. No, and I, like, yeah. I've embodied that. Like, even now I know that like a 13 year old or a 12 year old is not causing these things, you know, but there's still part of that. That's still, that's the wound, you know, like, Oh, oh totally. maybe and there's that, something in yeah. there. And particularly when you're like a younger kid, even younger than that, there's like this magical thinking that if you see there is like unhappiness in your parents, you just assume, Oh, I'm the cause of it. And um, it helps if they tell you that you are, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, exactly. No, then you just like take it on from totally. the authority figures. Yeah. No, that's um. Oh my God. And um. Yeah. Wow. No, I really hear you. That's um. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I mean, I had. I think so many of us have to go through our own version of of that. And um. I and the other thing that what you said made, makes me think of. So my father, he wrote the story. Everybody, he you know he's very charismatic. So. After my parents died, the rest of my family excommunicated me. I haven't had a family for close to 20 years. Yeah. They're all completely in agreement that I'm, you know, mentally ill, in denial of my illness, that I'm abusive or evil or whatever. Who knows what their story is? And I just had to live with that. And that's, you know, so that's really this whole experience that we're touching on. That's how I began to um, come to the understanding of what I write about in with the Watiko book. Great. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. I mean, I know you, you even wrote a book about your father and about the right. Watiko spirit alive in your father. That's a more recent book, right? Yeah, yeah. So I wrote the Watiko book in 2013. And then two years later, I wrote, uh, I wrote the book about is my own personal memoir, talking, really going into the extent of the abuse and the trauma. You know, I mean, I, I didn't really go into um, the awakening much. I mean, I just talk about it, but I wasn't overly interested to talk about that, I was more interested to talk about the, the evil and the abuse and trauma because so many people have gone through their version of that. And typically when people, when they read that book, um, Awakened by, by um, um, Evil? Darkness. Awakened Awaken by, by Darkness. darkness yeah. When Evil Becomes Your Father. That's yes, the yes, subtitle. Yeah. When Evil Becomes Your Father. Um, the typical response I get is people thanking me because um, I was able to find the language for the emotional, psychological abuse that so many people feel, but it's incredibly hard to articulate. Because, now, just keep in mind, for years, I can only describe the emotional abuse from my father in two sentences for like 10, 20 years. That's all I could describe because it's so hard to language. It severs your vocal cords, so to speak. But then, as soon as I began to heal and really connect with my voice, 
then I wrote this book and it's a quarter million words. You know, you just couldn't shut me up because I was able to then find the words to articulate the nuances of how, you know, sort of psychological, emotional abuse and trauma and, and with mind control and brainwashing, how that works in a typical family system. And that's the reflection from people who, who read that book. They're typically like very grateful that I was able to find the words because I think it, so many people have had similar experiences. I could hear, you know, I, I come from a, a Russian background. My, my mom's side is from Siberia, Russian speaking. My mom was raised in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, born in China. And then I was the first one in my family born in the States. And they carry with them this real like stoic, oh. I'm going to carry the weight of the whole world and just fucking right. deal with it. And you need to deal with it too. And if you have a problem dealing with it, pray. And if praying doesn't do it, then you're doing something wrong and God's pissed at you because, you know, look at me, I'm just fine. And why are you even meddling in this stuff? Get over it. You know, like in 1917, they were murdering our families in the streets in Russia. And then my father's side is German Jewish. So kind of along Mm -hmm. the same line there, at least that's what I know. He doesn't even know his father. So I hear different stories about the background. Uh, And, uh, you know, they were also killing those people in concentration camps and all sorts of crazy stuff. So you know, who are we to be digging in this? Just get over it, move on, make a life for ourselves, put it behind us. I mean, you know, people, you know, this is a common narrative. You know, this is the yeah. narrative of the right. For the most right. Part. But if I could say something about that, I mean, my, and I talk about this in the book. I mean, I openly talk about how totally, you know, in trauma I am and I've been, and our species is in trauma. We all suffer from PTSD. And, and one of, you see, it's so because trauma is related to what Tico too. And trauma gets passed down through the lineage, through the generations, just energetically. If it doesn't get healed in one generation, it literally gets passed on to the next. And um, the thing which is really interesting about trauma is when we get traumatized, so like I was saying before, we split, we dissociate, and then the way we try to heal from the trauma, the symptomology of trauma is such that the way we try to heal from it actually recreates the very trauma we're trying to heal from in a hmm. self-recreating, self-perpetuating, self-generating feedback loop. And the thing which is crazy about that is that that's the most sane response that we could possibly do, and it's a form of insanity. So that's really interesting because tra- trauma is a quantum phenomenon. It, it contains both the opposites in a superposition of states. Now, the point is, is that so then in the compulsion to repeat, that is the symptomology of trauma, that is the pathology of trauma, the repetition compulsion, as we actually recreate the trauma as our you know, attempt to heal it, encoded in that scenario is the medicine, if we're able to recognize it. And that's what, what makes, you know, when we actually finally get to talk about what Tico, and I'm happy that we're mm-hmm. circumambulating around it, I feel no rush to get to it. But the thing about Watiko, I mean, it's the spirit of evil, you know, really, and it's a Native American term, but every spiritual tradition talks about it and a lot of creative artists and philosophers and thinkers and even scientists talk about it. But the thing which is amazing about Watiko, which is related to trauma, is that encoded, being a quantum phenomena, it's the source of the greatest evil. And it's not only contained, you know, not only does it contain its own medicine, but it actually contains a blessing. It's actually helping us to wake up. If Watiko didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It actually is a catalyst for our evolution. You know, so just to give you a little sampling of how amazing this 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 idea of Watiko actually is. 
I think what's going through people's head is, is that even real with Tico? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, and here's the, if I can just say, yeah. no, it has no independent existence whatsoever. It's not real at all. And it can kill us and it can destroy our species. That's the paradox. Okay, if I can just say a few words about that. So Watiko, it's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul that all of us have in potential. If we see somebody out there and we think, oh, they have Watiko, say they're taken over by that daimon, by that archetypal energy, and they're embodying it, and, if, and then we get triggered and we think, oh, they're the ones who are evil, they're the ones who are embodying Watiko, that point of view is showing that we're under its thrall because Watiko feeds off of polarization. Okay, it always projects. It always sees the darkness outside of itself. It's got to love and Facebook right now. It's got to what? It's got to love Facebook. Oh, oh, totally. Oh, absolutely. Any all social media, totally. And so now the thing about Watiko. So the source is the human psyche, right? And and it's actually this form of of not seeing, of of being having a blindness, but it's a particular type of blindness. It's the blindness that believes that it's sighted. And not only does it believe that it's sighted, it believes it's more sighted than the people who actually see. Okay. Now, the source is the unconscious. It operates through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way, because we're always projecting onto the waking inkblot. I mean, what is a dream but a projection? So it operates through the projective tendencies of the mind in such a way that we project onto the waking inkblot which then the waking ink plot in no time whatsoever reflects back our projection. But then we assume that what we're actually perceiving via the projection objectively exists separate from us, that we're not actually participating in it. So then we react to the projection, become conditioned by it. And that's the feedback loop. That's the samsaric feedback loop whose source is our own mind that we have then hypnotized ourselves. And that's Watiko. And one other thing about Watiko that's so amazing, it's the source is inside the psyche and yet it has this magical talk about like you know the word magical it has this seemingly magical ability to extend itself out into the world and configure seeming outer events to synchronistically reflect the inner state of our psyche and that's just like a dream so in other words it's actually kind of in a way arranging events in our outer life so as to reflect and express the inner state of our psyche, that's a dream. Because what is a dream? When you recognize that in the dreamscape, that it's actually symbolically, and symbols are the language of dreams, it's symbolically reflecting the inner state of the dreamer, okay? So I've just given a mouthful, but it's, I'm trying to get across. It's an unbelievable idea. It's a saving idea that all indigenous cultures throughout history have come up with just in different language, different symbol system. And I, as a modern person, I'm just trying to bring it into a modern sort of psychological idiom and it can so help us. So why didn't the natives just realize that it was a dream when Columbus was coming here, you know, killing everybody and all of that? Yeah, no, that's to misunderstand because, you know, the nature, I mean, I think I'm a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and they'll talk about that there's uh, two levels of reality, the absolute level of reality and the relative level of reality, and they're both interpenetrating, they're not separate. You can't just exclude one and deal with the other. So the absolute level of reality, yeah, it's all a dream and we're all one and everything's perfect. Great, if you identify with that and all of a sudden here are people trying to kill you, you'll get killed. What good is that? You know, this is a precious vehicle, this human body, 
this is the vehicle for waking up. The idea being you have to honor the relative. If there are people trying to kill you, you need to deal with that and you know, to not forget from the absolute. Now, what most people do, they identify with the relative and they're just dealing with all the relative reality, which is just a construct in a certain way, but then they're disassociated from the absolute reality. The point is, is to be in touch with both and to honor both. Well, how does okay. one do that? Like, I mean, because I see a lot of people in kind of the new age circles, they just think they, they like they live in a way that's almost like narcissistic solipsism. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's exactly. I use the same term. I'll talk about people who just say, oh, I want to I'm just going to with all the insanity and evil playing out in the world. Oh, evil's not real. I'm just going to meditate and do my mantra and everything will be OK. I actually write about there. There. That's narcissism because they don't realize that being a dream, their inner process is manifesting through the channel of the outside world, which means the way to engage on your inner process is to participate in life and to deal with what's being presented to you. You know, certain small percentage of people are called to go on retreat and be hermits and do spiritual practice. Great. But I'm with you. So many new age spiritual people and they're well-intentioned, good people. They're just... They're, they're really sensitive and they're probably terrified to go, They, you know, working a nine to five feels like their soul is sucking at them. Uh, yeah, you know, no, and I understand that. I, I mean, drive I down couldn't... State Street here in Utah and I, you know, there's homeless people everywhere and there's the, the buildings are dilapidated and abandoned, but it makes sense for people to just keep them because then there's more write-offs and all sorts of other things. So they just sit there. Yeah. I mean, it's no, just, totally. it's like, I'm I like, mean, if I'm creating that, I definitely would love to press the button to stop that, un, you know? To uncreate that, yeah, right. for sure. Right. And the, so the thing I just want to own, I have a real edge. Um, I mean, an example, you know, I mean, not so much anymore, but when uh, the Spelling Watiko came out in 2013, there's the big metaphysical bookstore in, in the town I live in, and I've been teaching there for years, and they wouldn't carry the book. They wouldn't carry the Spelling Watiko because it had to do with evil. And, you know, they're just, and I, I actually, it, it just so freaked me out in the sense that, yeah, they're like all about love and light and identifying with light and not wanting to put any, any energy on the dark. But I point out in the book, but when you do that, but if you're avoiding the darkness, you're unwittingly empowering the darkness, you know? And that's very different than seeing the darkness out in the world and in your mind, how it plays out through your own unconscious triggers and reactions to the darkness out there. When you see the darkness, you don't want to become overly fascinated by it, but you, you, you can actually see it. And then being a sovereign being, we are in control of how we invest our attention. We can then say, I want to choose to invest my attention in creating the world I want to live in. That's when we're really, that's when we're really being empowered dreamers in touch with our creative agency. So often I find what I really want in, in life and in the world by examples of what it is that I don't want. You know, it's hard for yeah, me to even yeah. see what it is that I do want, you know, and I hear in the new world, don't ever say what you don't want because all you get is that because you said it, you know, and then you got people like scared, scared to use certain words or, you know, reading into everything, you know, and, and for me, I almost, ex I experienced the opposite. Like, I don't know what I want because I don't know with what, what, if I get what I think I want, if it's going to come, if I get a big mansion, which I don't want, but if I did want that, like, I don't realize that that comes with 
it's always breaking and it's really cold in certain rooms and I've got to heat right. it all. And then I got to have, you know, people working in it and those people are going to be jealous and envious that I live in a mansion. I'm going to feel that tension from them. And, you know, yeah, now yeah, I'm into yeah. these strange so, relationships and I live next to other people that also want mansions. And then now they don't have any right. interpersonal skills and I have neighbors that I never meet, you know, and, you know, yeah, no, totally. I just want to say, it makes me think uh, I'm an artist and the best self portrait I ever did. I, I remember, um, in that, I didn't know what I wanted, but I kept on like working on it. And it's like, no, 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 that's not what I want. And I would erase that version. And then the next version, no, 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 that's not what I want. And then all of a sudden after doing that again and again, boom, there it was. That's what I was looking for, but I wouldn't have found it without first finding all the stuff I didn't want, you know? Now I just want to go back to something. One of the key things of my work is that the profound importance of um, shedding light on evil, you know, that people who say, oh, evil isn't real or, you know, and I'm not talking, you know, in a metaphysical sense, I'm not qualified in that way. I'm just talking from the psychological sense, you know, where we're, I mean, take a look at what we're doing. We're actually, you know, we're destroying the biosphere, the life support system of the planet to the extent that we're, you know, kind of still acting out our addictions. We're destroying ourselves, whether killing ourselves, you know, whether it's a slow suicide or actual, you know, suicide. And the point being that there's some sort of like this, this destructive impulse in potential that lives in all of us. And that's playing out through the greater body politic of the world. And the thing about Watiko or about like, if you talk about a demon or evil is that, and, and with mythology, they point at this, they say, yeah, when you shed light on the vampire, for example, because Watiko is like a vampire, um, it has no power. It only has power because it operates in the shadows. It operates through the blind spots, you know? And then it can hide in identification with yourself and you become the instrument, like we were saying before, you become possessed by that darkness and then it acts itself out through you, be it in your addictive patterns or in your relationships or whatever channel that you acted out. So what I'm talking about is shedding light on that process in your own self. And then by doing that, you take away the demon's power, which ultimately doesn't even exist, and you empower yourself simultaneously. So the Wintico spirit, we haven't really talked too much about the nature of this spirit. And yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to, I'm pulling up something here on my phone. Uh, to show you that I thought you might feel is pretty wild. But the uh, Wentico spirit is the spirit of evil, but also the spirit that wakes us up. I, I, what comes to mind for me is I'm more often tempted to both remember a nightmare and to look at a nightmare uh, because they're very memorable and the details are yeah, very yeah. memorable. Uh, they bring you, like when something terrible like is going on and you're able to be with it, your sense of awareness, acuity of awareness seems to be enhanced as opposed to just like a wandering walk and kind of in a really beautiful landscape. Um, although I love beautiful landscapes and would choose that over the darkness if I'm given the choice, but oftentimes we're not given the choice. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about what, what Wentico is uh, it, to someone yeah, that's yeah, yeah. never heard of Wentico or Wendigo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, totally. So like I was saying, it's a Native American term connoting the spirit of evil. It's a psycho-spiritual disease of the soul. It's a quantum phenomena in that encoded within it is simultaneous, the deepest source of all the evil. And it has this incredible blessing for us 
you know, it's a catalyst for our for the evolution of our species. And, is it the um, devil? Is is when Tico yeah, the same well, as the devil? Right. Well, the thing is, yeah, the devil would be a symbol for it, or Satan. That would be in Christian mythology or in the apocryphal text. They talk about um, this entity um, that's, and, and it refers to it as the counterfeiting spirit. So think about Watiko, and I think that this would be a really good way of understanding it. Um, this really speaks to me. It's, it's, it, it like is an imposter. It will ape us. It will think about a thought form or a self image. It will conjure up, you know, through our minds, uh, you know, this negative, this limited image of who we are, or it'll, it'll impersonate who we are in a negative, limited way, right? Oh, I'm traumatized or I'm depressed because there's incredible power of the word. I mean, how do you make a word? You spell it. We're continually casting spells by our language, by our self-talk. So Watiko, it actually, it's, it's a counterfeiting spirit that apes us and is, it impersonates us. And if we're not awake in that moment, we'll then identify with its version of who we are. So it puts us on and putting us on has a double meaning, like putting us on like a suit of clothes, but putting us on also means to fool us. And then if we don't see it's, you know, how it's fooling us, we then will literally take it on, identify with its version of who we are. And, and then eat the next certain moment, food, drink alcohol, do drugs, meth, right. whatever do the BDSM, behavior, whatever. watch crazy exactly. types of exactly. pornography, all whatever of those the, Whatever the behavior is, exactly. And then, and then that just, now we have confirmation of that is who we are. So then we're feeding that particular identity and that becomes even more entrenched in our mind as far as who we actually are, which makes it more probable that the next time that image comes up, we're then going to step into, you know, similar, like, like you were saying, each time we act out our addictive impulses, it makes, it strengthens them. It makes it that much more likely. And that's the feedback loop that we can, we can literally, you know, become like the lodge that Watiko inhabits. We become the host. And it's kind of like a tapeworm when a tapeworm gets into our body because it's like a mind parasite. It's a mind virus. Watiko is a virus of the mind. But like, think about what a tapeworm does. It gets into our system and it secretes chemicals in us that we crave food that feeds the tapeworm. And all the while we're thinking we're feeding ourselves, it grows bigger until it ultimately kills us. But it doesn't want to do that too soon because then it would suffer the inconvenience of having to find a new host. So that's an image of Watiko. And, um, and the idea of it being a virus of the mind, you know, we think about, oh, viruses are physical when we get sick, you know, physiologically. Yeah, well, this is a mind virus. And um, so just to give you a little bit of a sense of, and it's a real thing in the sense that, like I say, ultimately it has no intrinsic independent objective existence and it can take down our species. It can kill us. And that's the paradox. Okay. Kind of like could blindfold yourself to where you can't see the sun, but if you stay out in it long enough, it will kill you, even though it's very far away. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Um, I wanted to uh, touch on trying to find the word that you used in your book. Um, I talk a lot about economics, and I know that was in a past life of yours, and you brought up Watiko right. in economics, and uh, I've never heard, it, heard our economic system put in such a pejorative yet accurate way. Uh, word you used is vampire squid from hell uh right well that's not even me i got that from somebody else but oh, yeah great. and like <laughs> and vampire squid economics no well the thing about watiko is that i mean it's very much like this vampiric spirit and think about what a vampire is 
Well, first off, a vampire has no power over you unless you invite it in, right? So in other words, that's pointing at that we're complicit in if we're engaging with a vampire, we have to like shed light on our, our complicity. And that's one of the key things about what Tico is that we're not a victim. There's not something that, oh, that's doing something to us on some level where we're in collusion with it. And the thing about a vampire, think about it, it, it doesn't actually have a life of its own, but it feeds off our life force to give itself a quasi life. So, you know, just think about it in relationships. There are certain people you hang out with and in hanging out with them, you feel really filled up and more creative and more inspired when you leave. And there are other people you'll hang out with and afterwards you'll feel drained. You'll feel energetically something that they're like taking something from you. And that's the Watiko spirit. Watiko is a cannibalizing spirit that actually takes from whoever, from the rest of the universe without giving anything back. That's a really beautiful definition of Watiko, you know? And it's kind of like our economic system where you have yeah. 65 people that have half of the world's wealth. I yeah, mean, that yeah, seems yeah, no, like exactly. if an economic system was a being, like if, half, yeah, like if yeah. the tip of my finger weighed the same amount as the rest of my entire body, then yeah. we would say that something like I have elephantitis of my pinky yeah. finger. Well, no, it's very know, much like, like that. I, I talk about that. I mean, in, in an organism, if your pinky, if that little part of you took all the resources, well, then the whole organism would die. Yeah. The idea is you're all interdependent and you depend, all the different cells and organs in your body depend upon each other for all of their survival. And that's, that's a healthy, that's an ecosystem that's healthy. But when, now the thing about Watiko, it's like, so it's this unhealthy pathogen that gets into our psyche and it subsumes all the healthy aspects of the psyche to feed its pathology until over time it destroys the host. And that maps onto economics, exactly like you were saying. You know, if that one little part of the body politic is taking all of the resources, well, then the rest of the body politic, including it. You see, the thing about Watiko, it destroys everything ultimately within its sphere of influence, including itself, you know? And to the extent that we're unconscious of it, then we're just, you know, it's in the driver's seat driving us over a cliff. And what I'm pointing at is, wait, there's a way of looking at this. Because if you remember, Watiko is a form of blindness it actually, the parts, it's like an autoimmune disease of the psyche. We're like, think about autoimmune disease, the part of, of the, you know, of the body that's supposed to be like, you know, kind of protecting us turns against us and attacks the very body it's, it's supposed to be protecting. Well, Watiko is an autoimmune disease of the psyche. And the sen- in the sense that the part of the psyche that's supposed to monitor, like, you know, sort of pathogens like this, gets co-opted to actually like be part of Watiko. I could hear that person that gave me that first review. He's leading the children away from God. You know, the idea that somehow if you even look at this or engage with this type of like energy. Well, that is somehow... so trippy. Yeah. That is so trippy. That you, you, you shared this with me before we went live that somebody you had heard just this morning and mm-hmm. their teacher or something, somebody had said, oh, don't read Dispelling Watiko it will lead you. What, what did they say? They said that it is by definition Watiko because it right. is taking from appropriating from Native American thinking and turning it into Watiko. Right. right, right, right. And I've had these Native American elders come to me and off, give me offerings after reading my book, sort of so happy that I was able to like translate it because all I am is a translator. 
Um, but but I want to point out that process so tripped me out. I be, I don't know if you remember when you told me that I began smiling. Yeah. You know. So here you're telling me, oh, somebody when they heard that you were interviewing me today, they were like, oh no, don't read that guy's book. It's it's Watiko itself. And what I said to you is, yeah, you know, when you hold up a mirror, and etymologically the word mirror means holder of the shadow. When so here I'm trying to like hold up a mirror and shed light on Watiko. And if somebody hasn't shed light on their own Watiko, they're going to see that mirror and they're going to contract against it and they're going to react against it and they're going to resist it. And they're going to think, oh, that light that's flooding light on Watiko is itself Watiko. And you see the thing about Watiko, and you can tell, I mean, there's endless creative articulations. When somebody's taken over by Watiko, you accuse other people of doing what you yourself are unconsciously doing. That's one of its hallmarks. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. There's been someone, I don't want to mention their name because it's almost like I don't want to evoke this person, but uh, they had this mission to destroy our whole dance community and just annihilate everything because they were no longer allowed at this place. And they went with pickets and accused me of being a vampire and a Luciferian right. and all these other things. And uh, right. so, uh, but they do this to everyone. So it's not just me. It's basically pretty much any... As far as I could tell it, well, it's not, it's not even just uh, to men. I mean, it's even attacking women and pretty much anybody that doesn't agree with this person, they're attacking. And the fascinating thing is that they're, they're pointing out this same exact thing. Just like when I was a child, you're the Antichrist. Now it's instead you're the Luciferian, you're the, you know, the, right. and, and it's weird because for me, I start questioning it. I'm like, well, am I, am I a vampire? Do I right. take energy from this dance? And I, and I do, like I go there and I feel more exuberated and, and, and happy. Like, is that bad? Should I not? And I like my, my hesitation. And I see this a lot of times in people in this community is this like Christ-like archetype, but not even Christ as like the living Christ, but as in the sacrificial Christ, the martyr. And a lot of people feel like they have to be suffering and they have to be giving way more than they take. And then they have, and then they feel resentful and bitter and their lives are just falling apart. A couple people come to mind when I think of that. Right, right. Well, what you just said, that's so interesting because I'm in a position as my work gets more and more out, you know, on in the world and I'm getting more out on the stage. Um, There are people and I'm, you know, I'm not going to name names who are like attacking me and really trying to destroy me. And, um, you know, and the thing which is interesting is that um, so on the one hand, it's really traumatizing because it's it's like a reiteration of the very wound with my father. Of like, oh yeah, my father didn't see me, and he projected the shadow on me, and now here's the current iteration of that. So it's like really touching this core, painful, wounded, traumatized place in me. But at the same time, and I want to point this out for you too, that it's an incredible opportunity because I see, oh, it's only problematic if I get hooked by their. You know, keep in mind these people don't even have never met me, have never spoken with me, don't know anything about me but yet they've gotten triggered by something and they're just totally like solidifying me, you know, sort of like being an antichrist type of figure. And, and, but I see it as like, oh, wow, what an incredible opportunity for me. I see the part of me that could unconsciously get hooked by that and take on their version of who I am. And then I'm fucked. Oh, totally. Yeah. Or, or I can, I can actually, wait a second. I know who I am. And, you know, and so it's actually this incredible occasion for me to even get more in touch with who I know myself to be. And there's the hidden blessing in that seeming like problematic situation. Wow, it's actually helped me even more heal. It's a corrective experience from my trauma. 
It's so wild because I, I made a joke kind of because it got so ridiculous and uncomfortable that I said, well, well, think about it. Clearly, I'm a vampire because uh, uh, I, I rent the Krishna temple. And so they don't have to invite me in. I have a lease that gets me in every time. So I don't have to be invited. Right. And uh, I figured out how to do this daytime walking in the day thing. But that's another thing. My last name is Geist, which means ghost. Right. So like I'm a walking ghost. I was born in a total solar eclipse. So like it was when it was sun and then it became completely dark. And I was also born on Chinese New Year's. So uh, like, so that makes sense. My, the Utah screwed up on my driver's license and put that I was born in 1920. So like, really I'm 99 years old and how would I look right. like this? And also I'm at a Krishna temple where they don't serve garlic. Like, like, think about it. Like, and right, I have totally. all these light beings and this woman saying I'm a vampire, you know? And I said, and I thought about yours. I just, I searched your, to see your other works. Cause I've only read the Watiko book and I just searched on Amazon. And, and the thing is, is that people could look at all of these things and make signal out of noise. And I was like, oh, and I look up and I just happen to notice uh, how many uh, reviews come up when I search your name. Oh, wow. What are the oh, odds of funny. that? So, so people right. could say, oh, look, this is, this is proof. You know, he's got the ID, he's right. got this thing. And I'm like, you know, and, and I think we live in a time right now where, you know, gosh, you know, somebody could start a, a, a witch hunt trial over just about anything. And, and, and the appropriation right. element is tough because here we are in this melting pot without a lot of historical roots when things are coming to people. I mean, people are speaking languages that aren't even the language that they know under, right. under, under trance. So like, what I want to say based on what you're saying, and I so appreciate um, what, you're, what you're bringing up, is that you see... Now, the thing about Watiko is that it can only have power over us if we don't see it. So when we, we turn a blind eye towards our wound or towards our own darkness, our own shadow, or the shadow as it's playing out in the family system or in the body politic of the world, all of that, that turning away feeds Watiko. So then the question is, well, how do we heal Watiko? How do we heal Watiko, Paul? Yeah, and, <laughs> right. And there are three three aspects and they're all really the same they're all interrelated and i i just figure um that i should go into them because on the one hand um one is to see through the illusion of the separate self because when you actually have the recognition that this is a dream and seeing the dreamlike nature that's the second way that's related to seeing through the separate self because when you see this as a collective dream we're just each other's, we're characters in each other's dream. We're dream characters. Think about you have a dream just last night and you wake up and you contemplate, wow, I had this person and that person. Well, those dream characters are just embodied reflections of parts of you. So the idea being they're not, we're not separate. We're interconnected. We're interdependent. We depend on each other for our own well-being. But it's not just a dream. You don't just walk around and like whack little children over the no, head no, no, or, no, or no, no. walk in that's, oncoming that's traffic mis- or do whatever the mis- hell you want. No, no, no. That's a total misunderstanding and I can get to that. So on the one hand, the first is to see through the illusion of the separate self. Um, keep in mind, before I, I found the word Watiko, I was describing exactly Watiko, but I didn't have the word. I was calling it malignant egophrenia. M-E disease, me disease. It's a misidentification of who we think we are. If we're actually identified with a separate self, with a reference point in space and time that's separate from the rest of the universe and separate from other people, that's a form of Wotiko. That's the expression of Wotiko. So the first is to see through the illusion of the separate self. The second is to see the dreamlike nature. 
And the third is to recognize the non-local field. Now, non-local is a physics term which has to do with that this universe, it doesn't play by the third by, by 3D laws of space and time. That um, you know, this universe is interconnected and at one with itself, both spatially and temporally, you know, um, everywhere and at every when at the same time and all over the place. So the point is, is that seeing the non-local field, seeing the dreamlike nature, seeing through the illusion of the separate self are all basically interconnected um, insights that are basically saying the same thing. And when you see that, what the energetic expression of that realization is, is compassion. That's the real compassion. And when you have genuine compassion, not idiot compassion, where you're just being all smiley face and patting each other on the back, but sometimes compassion can be fierce. If you see abuse, you set a boundary and you do your best to stop it. But the idea of real, genuine compassion, that's the Watiko dissolver par excellence. And that's why I was like smiling when like you said, oh, that teacher said, oh, don't read this guy's book. It's like the devil. And I'm just like, well, you know, I'm familiar with that projection. Like, you know, what can you, what can I say to that? You know? Yeah, it seems like that's a easy thing to put on people is the whole, like, I could, I, I worry about, you know, the, my biggest worry of this Watiko podcast with you was that people would listen and then start projecting Watiko onto everybody else. And this person's Watiko no. and that's yeah. Watiko. But, but and... that's the big mistake. That's the big, like I was saying before, if you see whether, you know, this president or that congressperson, oh, they're, they're bad, they're Watiko. You having that viewpoint of seeing the Watiko out there, of seeing the evil out there, that's a, a red flag that you yourself have fallen under its spell. Because like I was saying, it feeds off of separation of polarization, okay? The idea being, like how I first, my first book was The Madness of George W. Bush, a reflection of our collective psychosis. And I was pointing out that, yeah, we dream, I was so freaked out when Bush was president that it helped me to keep, keep me sane. And I was pointing out, we have dreamed up George W. Bush, and now you know we can mention our president even more. Um, <laughs> I'm waiting for that know. book. I, that's that's what yeah, was going on. Right, but I don't even have to to write that book because other it's people so now yeah. now it's so obvious, and so many people are like writing about it that I'm like, great, I don't even have to do that anymore. Other people are doing that, but in Bush, everybody was like, what a radical idea. I was saying we've dreamed up Bush to embody our own madness. And if we think that he's separate from us and we're like, you know, thinking he's the bad or the crazy person, no, we've fallen under under Watiko. The idea is You don't is think we should take Donald Trump and like take uh uh create like mannequins of him fat, like with his weird hair and a small penis and put it up and shame him and make fun of him and call all of his followers idiots and all of that? You don't well, think that's a the thing, you don't think the that's thing helping? Which is, which is which is really interesting. I I'll just speak to that. I mean, you know, I I mean I you know, not in any way do I like Donald Trump, but I'm aware that from, from a meta point of view, it doesn't even have to do with Trump. Like if we got rid of Trump, the system is so corrupt. But I guess the one thing I want to say about the political situation right now, in, in my lifetime, um, I've never seen a political situation like this where there's such polarization and you, we can't even have dialogue. If somebody sees, if somebody's a Trump supporter or anti-Trump, 
they can't talk with each other at all. They just immediately get polarized and demonize each other. Oh, they're crazy. They're bad. They're this, they're that. People are just and, waiting to figure out what, what you say. Who do you stand for? What, 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 yeah. what, what side are you on? And, and then the and, minute you say what side, then they'll ignore everything you say or listen to everything you say, depending right, on what right. that and, is. That's exactly what I'm pointing at. And what I'm, what I'm trying to, and I'm thinking of, of writing an article about this, what I'm pointing out, yeah, there are certain people who are just under delusion. They've ingested the propaganda and they're not interested in facts. And yeah, that's one segment of people. But then there's another segment who have a different opinion than you. And yet they're well-intentioned, bright people. And they would behoove us to actually entertain, to empathically step into their perspective and try to understand what it is they're seeing. Maybe they're seeing 1% of something that you're not seeing. Mm -hmm. And maybe then you're seeing 1% of what they're not seeing. And all of a sudden then there's a more of a dialogue. I used to and do Bohemian you know, dialogue. I did a, I did a couple meetups right. with Bohemian dialogue. I thought that that was going to be the, my main purpose in life for a time. I'm like, you know, the solution really is to get people in a circle and have them talk about really uncomfortable things. And I did that a couple of times. And then I ended up kind of getting attacked a lot. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I'm not right. trying to tell you how to do this, but I'm at the same time pointing out that what you're saying is very incoherent. You know, we have to at right. least agree that we want to continue living. But but I want to point out, yeah. so, but and then, and then it sounds like you stepped out of that. Like yeah, if that yeah. happened in the groups that I lead, because people are committed and in the groups for years and years. And if, if I tried to facilitate a dialogue with people who had different points of view, and then they began attacking me, we'd be like, great, let's go into that. What's that about? And we would unfold it maybe that whole night, maybe over weeks, maybe over months, maybe over years, trying to like actually unpack what's underlying that. But I that think it all... was premature for me. I think like I right, was so right. craving to try to work through the issues. And I think it's a lot of shame issues too, of like, hey, this, like, this stuff is really, you know, nothing makes any sense. Maybe we could gather people together and make some sense of it. It wasn't that part of my journey yet. And I think it was- Right, right. And yeah. the thing is, it sounds like the way I would hear it is that you, didn't, you weren't able to create the container. I wasn't, you know? no. And, and that's the key. That's the key. Having the container, you know, and then the container, if there's conflict, great. What's yeah. that about? Let's yeah. go into that. When there's friction, it creates light, you know, potentially. Yeah. And um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I've learned that so many, you know, spiritual people are averse, have a aversion to conflict. And that's a drag because it can be really creative and it can deepen our intimacy if we actually go into it with each other in a certain way. We have to feel safe to do that, though, too. Like if it's all directed at one person, um, then it's, it's right. It's, but, but the safe thing, you know, I have such an edge around, Oh, well, the safe spaces, like in college, like you're not sure. allowed to trigger people. Yeah. But well, no, I'm talking about like physical uh, violence and right. Oh, like, of course. No, absolutely. I mean, part of the container is creating a safe space. Right. Yeah. yeah but there also a, needs to yeah. be ability to sp part of a quote unquote, a healing spaces for any, for a lot of things to be able to enter. I mean, there's gotta be, I don't know. I don't know how far this goes. What is that threshold? I was at a Michael Mead retreat in Mendocino and there was, you know, some intensity where I thought somebody was going to kill somebody. I mean, they even said, I stabbed a motherfucker a bunch of times, you know, and like, and like, you're like, this guy's going to kill this other guy, you know? And, uh, right, and, right. and I'm, I'm still alchemizing or that, yeah. whatever happened well, is still if alchemizing. I can, yeah. If I can say something about that, cause, cause with alchemy, that's exactly the right word. Cause you know, in alchemy, the image of alchemy, the symbol of alchemy is the hermetic vessel is a test tube right and inside is is the pre the materia the prima materia the raw material the shit mm. the chaos and that if you don't have that 
you can't make the gold, and the gold is the, the awakened mind. But so just imagine you have the test tube, the alchemical vessel, underneath is the fire, the mm. fire of awareness, that, but then it's sealed because there has to be pressure in the vessel. If there's too much pressure, it'll blow its top, and then everything gets lost, and everything gets, gets just like projected out. But if there's, an, if there's no pressure, the prima materia doesn't transform. It so just the sits idea, there, indigest, just, like an indigestion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But the thing is, if there's enough pressure from the heat of awareness, the fire underneath, and if it's like contained, if the seal isn't broken, then all of a sudden that prima materia, the shit transforms into the gold, into the lapis, into a diamond, into the diamond body. And that's, to me, a beautiful image of, oh, of alchemy and of working with with a group and that's I, I know that so well because of the groups that i lead i mean i've been doing this like three four nights a week for 25 years so we talked about aboga and ibogaine and i and i and i spoke to you a little bit about the fact that my life was so intolerable at some point where i couldn't get myself to work unless i was numbing myself and the normal ways of alcohol and xanax right. didn't work so i went to opiates and then i was able to do door-to-door sales and all the stuff that i did and uh, and it was weird because I couldn't ever just earn a living. It was either I was like completely broke or making millions of dollars, of which I couldn't keep because I had no idea how to manage it, which was one of my wounds, which then I learned how to solve after this right. aboga journey. But I had the most terrifying experience of my entire life while I was on aboga. Uh, and it wasn't actually during the journey so much as it was. I, it was on the third day or whatever. I had went, I had fallen asleep for the first time after. And I know you've worked with aboga. There was even an aboga clinic mm -hmm. named after your work, a dream, uh, mm -hmm. uh, what is it called? Awakening in the dream house? Um, yeah, like that. Something like that. Yeah. So uh, in this experience, and, I've, and, I, and I never made this connection. Uh, and I've, this, this meaning has been constantly morphing because in this ter the most terrifying experience of my life, and I've experienced some terrifying moments with guns to my head and all sorts of crazy stuff and solitary confinement. So I've experienced mm -hmm. some terrifying moments, my teeth all being shattered and jumped and kicked in the face and all sorts of miserable things. So I'm not speaking from a, oh, this was you know, mildly terrifying. It was by, by far more terrifying than all of this. It was I went to sleep and, uh, and I had woken up with the absolute certainty somehow that there were aliens that were putting me into a capsule, into a glass vessel where I would live for eternity and I would constantly be suffering. And essentially this was the total test of human suffering and I would be immortal in this capsule. And this metaphor, this idea and that absolute terror that was in my body has had so many meanings for me, like kind of like the whole bubble world that we could potentially live in that we're totally cut off from ecology and living in a cement city in, in little bubbles. The idea of homo duez, the new homo sapien that essentially stays alive and becomes biologically immortal due to, due to nanotechnology. Uh, it also has the idea of like encapsulation of trauma, you know, and like how these aspects of ourselves or pieces of our souls are trapped somewhere else and then are, are invoked through certain situations that then come and act out and are calling to be integrated, but it looks like something very different. And what I'm seeing as it now is it might have been me, my uh, soul retrieval in a sense, going, going from this other place, no, into my body to go through this alchemical process. Because now this new soul piece of myself through this very intense aboga journey had to join into just regular consciousness living in my very painful body at the time and begin yeah, to alchemize. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's beautiful in the sense that that is the shamanic trip. And, you know, the shaman goes on a journey to retrieve the long-lost soul of themselves or of the client or whoever they're working with. And the idea of they're, like, actually having this, like, 
like it has to do with like remembering. They're recollecting and, and to remember to put their members back together, you know, and, um, you know, that is um, in a sense what we ourselves are in the process as a species, both individually and collectively, because it's like we have amnesia. And um, so what, what you described um, is really the shamanic trip. But there's one other thing that came up as you were describing that. And that is, I know for me, because I've gone through like you, I can see right away, just like pretty much everyone. I mean, it's not easy. It's not an easy gig being a human in this day and age. And there's a ton of suffering. I mean, so many people who look on the outside like they have it all together because I'm in my role, you know, I, I work with a lot of people. And then when, I, when people really are vulnerable, I see, wow, we're all so deeply, deeply suffering, you know, at least so many of us. And one of the keys for me with the suffering, when I'm just kind of, when I personalize it and identify with the suffering, and um, that becomes a big problem because then I see the part of me that's resisting the suffering and that just feeds into the endless recreated feedback loop the self-reinforcing feedback loop of suffering and not wanting to deal with it, which then just may, creates even more suffering. And then I don't want to deal with that. And then it's, it's, it's a regress, an infinite regress. Um, but the thing, the key for me, and I do Tibetan Buddhist practice, and this really, really helps. So here I am, every time I sit on my pillow to do meditation, you know, like I've been sharing, I still feel the depth of the woundedness and the trauma that I went through but the way I carry it is very different. But I'm feeling that pain all the time, right? For years and years, I couldn't imagine actually having to live with this. That was inconceivable to me. But now I've changed the story. We're like, I'm feeling this pain. Now here's the beginning of my practice. What if by me feeling this pain and feeling it consciously, no one else in the universe would ever have to feel this level of pain and negativity? Is there a part of me that would be willing to feel that? right? And the answer is, yes, there is. It's the bodhisattva part of me. There is a part of me that would be willing to experience exactly what I'm experiencing, keeping in mind I'm feeling the pain anyway, but yeah. I'm, contracting, I'm contracting against it. All of a sudden now, in my imagination, I'm getting in touch with the part of me that would be willingly, voluntarily taking on the pain, imagining that me feeling it, no one else would ever have to feel that. So that's what I begin to do I begin to like actually embody that and step into that imagination and then take a look at what's happening. Then all of a sudden, I'm not resisting the experience. I'm actually beginning to welcome it. And not only that, by me taking on the suffering so that no one else has to feel it, keeping in mind I'm feeling the suffering anyway, but I'm like cursing. And yeah, you're not the... like going out yeah. and trying to take on suffering and punishing yourself. Like no, the no, cat, it's not, like not self-flagellation. Yeah. No, it's not like that. But then take a look at what's also happening. I've cut through the duality of self and other. I'm all of a sudden, the part of me that would do that, the bodhisattva part of me, is recognizing my interconnectedness with other people, that they are myself, that we all are like part of one greater organism, and that's the compassion. And by, by cultivating that viewpoint, paradoxically, it literally heals and alleviates the very suffering that I was struggling with. So, so when that's an actual practice in Tibetan Buddhism, and um, you know, I'm just glad that I remember to share it because it so incredibly helps me when I'm able, you know, to do that. I think, uh, I think when we do end the podcast, uh, we should end if you feel comfortable with the mantra that you 
have been living with or has been living with you or has come to you uh, through your teachers um, and that you... Oh, oh, sure. Well, there, there are a number. I mean, I do a number of different practices, but there's one um, mantra, maybe this is the one you're talking about, that came to even... I was such a beginning practitioner at this point, and I didn't even... I, I was not even in this practice, this mantra I wasn't doing at all because I was such a beginner. And then in my first dream that I had lucidity, that I had a full lucid dream, spontaneously I began saying this particular mantra. Mm. And, um, and then every time I have a lucid dream, you know, and it depends what level of lucidity, but when I get to full lucidity, when, I, when I'm realizing, oh my God, this is a dream. When it I'm feels like, just like this, it, pretty much. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. When it feels like this and I'm recognizing and I'm recognizing that every, that I'm inside of my own psyche. That I just did a dream check right now. I tried to breathe with my nose plugged. That, you know, that's one of the ways. How do you test? How do you wake up in your dreams in order to have this? Well, I mean, you know, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, I mean, that's one of the main practices that you do all day long. You know, just having um, um, pure perception is what it's called. And what it is, you just go about your waking life moment by moment just with the viewpoint that this is a dream. And, and I'm not saying you do that and then you like jump on people or like do crazy things. No, that's a misunderstanding. But by having that viewpoint that this is a dream, that's basically saying that everything that you're looking in a mirror and you're seeing, you know, that everything that you're inside of your own psyche, that your psyche is not just inside of your skull, but it's actually just like a dream. When you recognize you're dreaming in a night dream, you recognize, oh my God, my inner process is manifesting as the outer world. I mean, that's what Christ says in the apocryphal text when he says you enter the kingdom, when you make the inner as the outer. You know, that's, that, that's you know, to, to recognize the dreamlike nature. If you remember, that's one of the antidotes to Watiko. And so the idea being that you just go about your life, you know, as best you can, moment by moment, cultivating that viewpoint of pure perception of like, oh yeah, like right now, you, you seem to be very convincingly a person on the computer screen that's separate and on, one, on the relative level of reality, that's true. But on the, the true level, the true nature state, who am I talking to? We're, we're not separate, you know, and both are true. You see, that's the logic. It's not like, oh, well, is one true that you're separate or is two true that we're, we're one? No, both are true. That's the paradox, you know? The, the, the fascinating thing is that I find truth is always paradoxical except for when it isn't of course <laughs> which just right. means that yeah yeah. It, yeah yeah maybe that's the piece that's unfolded uh that we might have more of a view of and then on a deeper level it, it then becomes paradoxical again just it temporarily might not be paradox or appear paradoxical yeah and so i'm i'm happy oh i'm sorry no no, no gonna... yeah say it yeah i'm happy to if you know because i i kind of have to get going soon um to you had mentioned about that that mantra, which I'm happy to share. Yeah. As we as we maybe you know kind of get closer to the end of and, and the th- I just want to say I I really love the just the incredible spontaneity of this conversation that there was really no agenda on either of our parts. Yes. And we're just having this incredibly compelling you know this discussion, and you know I I just love that that I really am appreciating that. It's surrendering to the spirit of the moment and what really wants to be said between us. You know, I think so often we mechanically right. have a conversation and we have this idea that we know uh, what needs to be discussed or whatever. And if you project that out uh, ad infinitum, 
then everything becomes contrived. It's the spirit of yeah, contrivance. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've learned when I give, because I give a lot of public lectures, um, that you know, if I prepare and memorize, and they typically don't go that well, but I've just learned to just, oh yeah, I have no idea what I'm going to say. And you know, I just go up there and I've just learned to trust that whatever I need to say is going to become apparent in the moment. And when I have that point of view, it's, you know, so often, you know, the talk I'm giving just goes really well. So in honor of that and trusting where it wants to go, I'm having a pull to look at my notes, which I haven't looked at, except for to say vampire squid. Uh, right. And see if there's one last question before you do the mantra. Sure, sure. Uh, Oh, one ear just went completely, all the hearing went out of it and then just came back. Mm -hmm. I know what that means. That happens to me sometimes. But Maybe I'll end with uh, this. And, and it was the movie that I feel, a couple movies where I think that the Watiko energy could be seen very easily and depicted on the, on the silver screen. Uh, one of them comes up for me and it's the... Uh, more familiar of the two, which is uh, the Gollum in uh, yeah, yeah. in Lord of the Rings, and the other one was the, uh, I believe Humphrey Bogart's character. I think it was Humphrey Bogart in Treasure of Sierra Madre. I don't know if you remember that. Kind of brings that element no, to yeah. to the money world where everybody's all fine and dandy about what they're going to find. And when they find the gold and they have a bonanza, then all of a sudden that spirit comes in and everybody's worried that someone else is going to take it and I'm not going to ruin the movie for you, but uh, it's, right. uh, it's a powerful depiction of the, that. Would take yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the thing which is great is, you know, like I have a new book um, that I finished that'll be coming out hopefully within the year. And, um, you know, I point out that so many different creative artists and scientists and philosophers, thinkers, and spiritual traditions talk about Watiko in their own way. And it's an incredibly great thing as creative artists, because if you remember, encoded in the daimon is the creative spirit. And one of the greatest poisons, if not the greatest poison for the human psyche, is unexpressed creativity. What that means is that one of the real solutions to dispel Watiko is to be creative. And when we as creative artists, which we're all creative artists, like we're all shamans in training, can actually creatively express Watiko, because keep in mind, it operates through the blind spots, which means as long as we don't see it, then it can act itself out through our blind spot, through us as the vehicle, unwittingly. And so the idea of that it's not just like it looks like this or it looks like that. No, it's a shapeshifter. And so, but the more like objectifications and creative expressions we can make of Watiko, whether it's in film or painting or dancing or story or whatever, you know, that's, that's enabling us to get a handle on it, you know, almost like pinning it down more and more so that it can't act itself out through, through our unconscious, really, you know. So could I then share the, the mantra? Because that I think... Yeah, maybe we'll end with that. How do people, before the mantra, how do people find you and what work do you do and how can they engage with your work more? Or oh, okay, um, sure. So I have a website, um, awakenindhedream.com. And um, so A-W-A-K-E-N in the dream.com. And, um, and there's just a ton of articles all for free and a lot of interviews, video and audio and talks and stuff like that. I just want to get the work, you know, the word out. 
And then, you know, I have books, you know, I have a, my recent book is on quantum physics and the Watiko book is there. You can buy them there on Amazon or whatever. But a lot of the stuff on the website is just totally for free because, you know, I just want to get this, this information out. And, you know, I'm in private practice. I, you know, I do sessions all the time with people. And, um, and you do them over the phone or Zoom or whatever? Yeah, over, over the phone, over Zoom or over Skype for sure. Or if they're in Portland, you know, in person. And, um, and how do, what about know, retreats and workshops or doing these, these, um, yeah, alchemical I, vessel? Yeah. Well that I have those, I have the groups, you know, three or four nights a week in my house, in my living room, that's been going on for 25 years and there's a waiting list for that. And they're, they're not easy to get into. And when I first began teaching, you know, a long time ago, I mean, I would do workshops and stuff like that. I just don't have time or energy right now, even though I'm getting more and more invites in different parts of the world to, to do that. You know, so that might happen, but I'm just really busy, you know, with with my groups and my private practice and my writing and my spiritual practice and all those things. I mean, that's how I structure my day, basically, you know. And then you know. also there's uh, Facebook groups as well that people could maybe join. Is there also? Yeah, that? I haven't. I'm not. A, so, I mean, I there literally like- not. There are people that have created the groups and they go along yeah. with your work. And I, I guess, it. I mean, I'm not part of that. I mean, yeah. I'm happy to, you know, I'm just not a, a computer person or a social media. I got my first cell phone just recently type of thing. You know, I'm, I'm just not into the whole. I'm sorry. I mean, and congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> totally. I mean, the only reason I'm on Facebook is because one of my publishers really kind of forced me to be, um, you know, and so in that way, I'm kind of old school in that I just like interacting with people on a person to person level, you know? And, um, yeah, so no, so that's great. I appreciate you bringing that up. And, um, and I'm happy, you know, because so many people who are going through, we're all going through, I mean, in this day and age, it is unbelievably challenging to be incarnate, you know, with what's happening in our world. And so many of us are either, you know, get in entrenched in a viewpoint of despair and pessimism you know, and depression around what's happening. And that's not helpful. And if you hold that viewpoint, you're going to then, you know, draw evidence confirming the viewpoint. And then you're just, you know, part of the problem. You know, then you've take, been taken over by Watiko at that moment. Or, you know, I mean, the whole idea is that so many of us are going through an amazing um, process of awakening where, oh, are we going crazy? Am I waking up? Whatever. And, and that's one of the things I can really help people with because I went through that. I literally went through that, you know, close to 40 years ago. And like I said, it destroyed my family. You know, I haven't had a family for close to 20 years and I'm talking no one. I don't have any family at all. And, uh, but I, you know, I have a huge soul family and circle of friends. Um, and, you know, it almost drove me crazy. So I, I can really help, um, you know, or at least it, a lot of people seem to get benefit you know, by, by connecting with me if they're going through some form of spiritual emergence, because it's a very slippery slope, as I think, you know, you know, there's such a fine line between, you know, um, going mad and waking up and, um, yeah. And, and, you know, and for me, I know I, I'm living proof of this. If I hadn't met my teachers when I got out of the last hospital in 82, um, you know, I, I might have been in deep, deep trouble, but they really, you know, helped me so much to connect with the part of me that was awakening instead of identifying with the part of me that was supposedly sick. And, you know, so they really played that role for me. And that's a role I can, I can maybe play for some people, you know. That's beautiful. Thank you. 
Yeah, for sure. Let's end with the mantra if you want to. Yeah, if you want yeah, yeah, for it sure. Say it. So, so, so this mantra came to me in a dream when I was really beginning Tibetan Buddhist practice, and um, and I wasn't even doing this practice, um, and and it came to me in in a lucid dream, my first lucid dream, and then every time that I have like a lucid dream, particularly a fully lucid dream, this is what happens, and I, I'll chant this mantra. And, and the mantra, it's the mantra, uh, um, Om Mani Pemi Hung, the six-syllable mantra, Om Mani Pemi Hung, and it's the mantra of, of compassion. So it's like the quality of compassion embodied in the form of sound. It's as if the quality of compassion took on a form and the form of sound being the mantra, that it's inseparable from the energy of compassion. And in Buddhism, they'll talk about if it's real awakening, if it's genuine awakening, it's always the co-joining of two factors of emptiness and compassion. And emptiness, that's lucidity. That's having the recognition that this isn't, that there's no objective world out there, that there's no intrinsic, independent, existing, objective world, that, is, that consciousness is a part of this very world that we're experiencing. That's lucidity, that's the emptiness. And then in Buddhism, they say if, it's a, if you're genuinely having the realization of emptiness, the energetic expression of that realization is always compassion. So compassion and the lucidity and the emptiness always co-join, always come together. And when you have that, that's the real awakening. And interestingly, I didn't even know that. I didn't know the mantra at that point. I was such a beginner. And interesting, so here I'm having this lucid dream, which is the, the realization of emptiness, and like my knee-jerk reaction was to start chanting this mantra, Om Mani Pemi Hung. And as I'm doing that, I'm not just invoking like a separate deity who's embodying compassion, but I'm like being flooded with that energy and I'm more and more identifying with and becoming the embodiment of that deity of just love and compassion, which is our true nature. And I'm just radiating that out to all beings as I'm saying the mantra, Om Mani Pemi Hung, in the dream. And that's, that's, been my experience, I'm describing my experiences and dreams, but that's also a practice I do every day, you know, and I try to do it all throughout the day, just walking around with the pure perception, seeing this as the dream, that I'm inside of my psyche, that everybody is a dream character and not separate. I'm having the pure perception and I'm trying as best as I can to cultivate that open heart of compassion, you know, um, and when I don't, I recognize it and try to bring myself back to that place of compassion. And so, what I want to share, so why don't I'll just say the mantra a few times and so we can imagine we're all doing it together. And, um, you know, and it's incredible. I mean, it's, it's the most, you know, popular and famous mantra in Tibetan Buddhism. And it is said that all the other mantras are encoded within this particular mantra, this six-syllable mantra, Om Mane Peme Hung. Okay? Oh, so I'll just, I'll just, um, I'll just do a little chanting of it. Oh mane peme hung, 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 Oh money be me hung, oh money be me, 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 oh money be me,
Okay, thank you so much. Really appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. And please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.